Listen, if you dare, to the Lovecraft Tapes. Welcome to the Lovecraft Tapes Podcasts. I am Jeremy, your keeper of arcane lore, and this is K-17 Seance 9. Your investigators of the unknown are Brian as Ben. I can't wait to get out of here. Lupine as Rosa. Let's go. Let's blow this popsicle stand. And Matt as Diego. Hey, I always have to put the staple right there. Huh? Oh, such a shame. Welcome, guys. How how you been since we've been gone? Good. Can't believe it's been like years, right? At least. Yeah, yeah. It kind of feels like it, honestly. <laughs> it's been years. As everyone knows, our previous case, number 16, was entitled Camp Mulholland, wherein Ben, Rosa, and Diego were sent off by their parents to a summer camp in the faraway foothills of California. And while they had hoped to avoid further encounters with the supernatural, strange occurrences continued to plague the teenagers, even away from home. Ultimately, they escaped with their lives, though the true psychic cost of their experiences had not yet manifested. Once they returned to Las Cruces, Diego's parents had no choice but to admit their son to a military psychiatric clinic where he underwent treatment for depression, hallucinatory delusions, and severe hemophobia. Rosa began acting out against her folks, accusing them of willfully ignoring what had happened to her, as her trust in adults eroded even further. Ben tried to put on a brave face for his mother, though the ritual taunting during his freshman year in high school, where the other students accused him of murdering the missing teens at Camp Hell, took its toll on his physical and mental health. Our three young investigators had perhaps prevailed against unknowable forces, but not without paying a steep price. Then, a miracle of sorts. Alden August, the retired dermatologist an amateur botanist who lived on the edge of town died in his sleep one night during the spring of 1975. For reasons unknown by most locals, he willed his estate to Herb Jocks, owner-proprietor of the Goods and Sundry Shop. Herb wasted no time moving into the August manse and many claimed thereafter to hear strange noises from the property or saw otherworldly lights emanate from the curtained windows on nights of the full moon. This was not the only bequest, however. A not insignificant sum was put into a bank trust, paid out in regular installments, to a private school in Los Angeles. On the day the transfer completed, a select group of parents 
received a certified letter delivered by courier. They opened and read the contents with curiosity and a fair amount of trepidation. Then, after rereading it several times, not believing the words, they contacted the San Francisco lawyer whose business card had been enclosed. It was all true, he assured them. Alden August had arranged tuition for Ben, Rosa, Diego, Harcourt, and Lindsay at the prestigious Greyheart Academy near Pasadena. If they graduated successfully, full scholarships to UCLA awaited them. When pressed for reasons why August might have left such a legacy to these specific recipients, the lawyer could only reply, I have no idea. He had no children of his own, so maybe he felt like helping those who needed it most. And as I understand it, your child has had a tough time of it recently. This point couldn't be argued, so the parents wisely chose not to pursue further inquiry. Instead, after the school year completed and Diego was discharged from psychiatric care, their parents dropped them off at the gates to the academy. Hurried kisses dried on their cheeks, and vague promises to visit regularly dissipated in their ears as the family vehicles drove away. They were alone now, but they had each other. Over the next few years, as it turned out, they had much more than each other. Greyheart Academy was a place where the educators encouraged imagination. Students were taught to collaborate and appreciate each other's successes. Differences were celebrated. Open-mindedness mingled with healthy debate without ever succumbing to petty competition or ego trip. Slowly, our investigators and their friends were subsumed into the small and very select student body. All the while their happy indoctrination continued, they barely noticed the dwindling and eventual extinguishment of their shared sixth sense, the reach. It was, after all, a vestigial bit of magic that belonged to adolescence. Now, they were well on their way to adulthood. As we begin K-17, it is April 1978. The world has changed significantly over the intervening four years. Nixon resigned, followed by Presidents Ford and Carter. Vietnam is over, officially though its specter will haunt the American psyche for decades to come. Spielberg's blockbuster Jaws scares the bejesus out of moviegoers and children in swimming pools, only upstaged a couple years later by a serial sci-fi epic called Star Wars. Saturday Night Live brings an unexpected bit of raucous comedy to late-night television. The Atari 2600 enters living rooms everywhere. 
and Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, dies. Our heroes will graduate from Greyheart in just a few short months and embark upon more worldly pursuits. Let's find out what they've learned and fill in some other gaps since we last saw them. All right, guys, the first thing I'm going to need you to do is to advance the age of your character four years. That will put Rosa and Ben at 18, and Diego will be 19. Woo! Screw you guys, I'm going to Canada to gamble. The next thing I'm going to need you to do is to erase the reach. Goodbye, Reach, my old friend. So the next thing up is uh, development phase. Let's go with Diego first. Go ahead and roll D100 for each skill that you have checked. And it looks like you've only got three there. Library use, listen, and spot hidden. So library is currently at a 20. And that's a 92. So you're going to increase that by D10. I got seven more library points, guys. What's a library? I got listening up. It's just currently at a 25. And it's going up to a 35. You should feel bad. These are all my good rolls now. The rest of the campaign, jack shit. I will not be able to do anything for you the rest of the game. Sorry. Or for yourself. Pretty much. Uh, Spot Hidden is at a 50, and I rolled an 83, so that's going up by 9. Go ahead and raise your San to your starting level. And I'm assuming I can uncheck Temp and Indef Insanity. Absolutely, yep. If you have any sort of temporary insanity, you can just go ahead and uncheck that. Uh, We're going to go ahead and recover some luck now, Diego. I'm at a 54. I rolled an 89. I'm getting two points of luck. Ben, how about you next? I uh, will say survival. I got under it, so I don't get to do anything with it. Locksmith, next. 54. That's above 40. So I roll a D10. Three. Spot hidden. You need to get over a 45. I got a 44. And stealth is 60. Hey, 67. Roll D10. I got a 10. Go ahead and recover some luck. 73. And roll D10. Two. And then we're going to move on to Rosa. Persuade. 56. So I roll a D10. Persuade goes to 59. And then psychology would be next. 84. So that is a success. 67 for your psychology. Spot hidden's next. Need over a 25. Good job, 92. And that goes up to 33. Okay, track. Need over 31. Of course I roll an 8. Read lips. Weed whips. Weed whips. And you got 94. Looks good. All right. So go up to 28. Roll D100 for your luck. Need over 30. Yes. Go ahead and roll D10. You can increase your luck. 31 in your luck. Wah, wah. Now, uh, we get on to the fun part, guys. Each of you gets 10 rolls you can make. Now, think about what you've been doing over the last four years, what kind of classes you might have been taking, what other extracurricular activities or self-learning you might have been doing. You can pick 10 different skills and make checks on those. You can pick one skill and make 10 checks on that. I don't care. Wow. This is your opportunity to take a couple moments, think about what your character would have been doing over those four years, and then apply that to the skills. And then essentially, we just need you to walk us through the story of why you chose those skills and then make those rolls. Now, you're obviously going to miss some of these checks, and you just need to keep a tally of the 10. I felt very helpless not being able to defend or fight or felt like I, everything, every time I moved or tried something, I was pushed 
pushed around. So boxing or something like that. Um, I'd like to put two in fighting brawl. But yeah, go ahead and you see you're going to do a fighting brawl roll. You do the first one. Okay. Okay, so that is over. You can increase that by D10. 10. So that's 10. So that makes that a 39. Now you're going to try to get over a 39. 54. So another D10. Five. And that'll take you to a 44. So fighting brawl, you just kind of wanted to be a little bit more self-sufficient and able to defend yourself. I like charm a lot. I want to try two in charm. Your bolster and your lucky charms are magically delicious. All right, I've got to get over 15. I rolled an 85. D10 is five. Now I got to get over 20. Rolled a 10. So I did not succeed on my second check mark. You got six more to spend. Yeah, I'm going to do persuade. You got a 15 in that currently. You got a 37 and D10. Give me a six. 21. Blackjack. Second attempt. 23. 10. Up to 31 on persuade. So you did a little bit better on persuade than charm. All right, you got four more to go. Down on the other skills, you're going to see something called hypnosis. Oh, yes, 100%. When that starts out at one. So you just got to be the one. I think I'm going to put three into this second. 45. D10. Oh, I rolled a one. Second roll. 20. And one. Oh, come on. So you're up to 3% on hypnosis. Can I cancel the last one or do I have to lock that You can in? if you want. We could say that you were, you've were you tried to go down that road. And it just didn't work. I'm putting at least one in to swim after being out on the dock and in the canoe and all that. That would make sense. So D Hondo? <laughs> no, sorry. You're not a strong swimmer. Well, you got one left. I'm going to try swim again. 88. Seven. All right, 27 on swim. Okay, you are good to go. Let's move on to Rosa. So I was thinking of computer use. Dihondo? I just need over five. 16 is good. Eight. So you're up to 13 in computer use. I want to do a firearms because just like Ben, Rosa felt really inept. All right, so you're thinking uh, handgun? Yeah, I think handgun. So that is a success. So you're up to 25 on your handgun? I think I'm going to spend another one. Okay, here. just need over a 25. Nice, bro. Nice. Nice. Oh, nice. Nice. And three. 28 on handgun. So I think she's going to do a cult because she sort of doesn't really trust adults anymore, as we've discussed. Needed over a 40. You rolled a 76. That's good. I got six more points in that. Ah. Oh, is that a cult again? Yeah, that was for a cult again. That was a fail. We got five left. I'm going to try once again with a cult. Oh, no. Okay. I really think it's just not going to happen. You have four left. So I'm going to go spot hidden. Oh, you can't get equal to it. It's got to be over. Yes, I rolled a 33 on a 33. You got three rolls left. I'm going to try spot hidden again. Fucking hell. I got 14 under 33, so that's another fail. Okay, I'm going to try, I'm going to try track. Or field. Oh, I succeeded on that one. Okay, so I get eight more on track. So that's a 39. And you got one final point to spend. I think those friends that have the gun are getting me to go places that I shouldn't be. So I'm going to go with locksmith. Ooh, I rolled a 30 over a 1, so... So I've got two on Locksmith now. I wasn't very good at it. That is you. Moving on to Diego. Considering how much time that Diego had to spend in therapy, he kind of uh, internalized a lot of that and picked up on a lot of the things they were doing, so I'm actually going to give him three rolls into psychology. Okay. So I need to beat a 3, and I did. Uh, no, you got it. Psychology's 10. I don't know what I'm doing. I still beat it. And I got another 10. Okay, so now you're up to 20. Pew, 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 pew. And a 52 beats a 20. And I get a 9. 
29 now. And a 45 and a 3. All right. So up to 32 on psychology. That's definitely a huge improvement. What's next? Considering the school that we're in is very open and free form, well, it didn't take long for Diego to realize that, you know, book learning ain't really his thing. Luckily, uh, the school also has a really great professions track, and he's realized that he's really into working with his hands. Particularly, he's a big fan of uh, working with metal. And so over the past uh, couple of years, he's uh, he's he's picked up a good bit of skill in welding. So I'm going to make that a new skill of mine, and we're going to, to see what we can add to that. This will fulfill all your fantasies of flash dance. I'd probably start that at a one, right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. 13 beats a one, and I'm adding one point to that. So you got two in welding. 13. And a seven. All right, so you're at nine on welding. We're gonna do one more into welding here. So I got 12 points. He's a beginner, you know, more of a hobby than a profession. You know more than most. Obviously, he probably would have spent some time keeping in shape over the years. So I'm going to do just one roll into fighting brawl, kickboxing weekend class down at the YMCA. Jazzercise. 92 beats my 48, and I get five more points. 53. And by my count, you got three checks left. So along with the studying into uh, welding and working with metal, he's also gained a bit of an appreciation for art. So I'm going to spend uh, two of my check marks on my appraisal skill. So I need to be a 12 and a 34 will do. So that puts me at 18 in appraisal and a 98, which still beats and a two. So I have 20 in appraisal now. All right. Nice. Uh, I'm going to do a single roll into mechanical repair. Being in a shop all the time with all those tools means I've kind of had to learn how to, you know, maybe get the machines running again if they stop or just the little things you have to do to kind of make them work properly. As a 53 and I got a single point, which gives me 11 points of mechanical repair. Ones when we don't need them. In the 90s, when we don't need them. Good job, guys. Uh, so that is basically your development, what you've experienced over the last four years. And thanks for helping me fill in those gaps story-wise. We got a couple other questions here. Uh, Diego, we're going to stick with you. After many months, your hemophobia was cured. How do you feel about your psychic well-being now? It's definitely in a better place than it used to be. Uh, it's it's an active daily thing where I have to be conscious of my state and where I am and how I'm feeling. And the therapy really helped um, teach me to center myself. So I do daily meditation. I make sure to, you know, watch my breathing. And it's it's a struggle because it's something that never really totally goes away. It's always lurking in the back corners of your mind. But he's he's doing a lot better, and he's been he's definitely been on an upswing now that he found not only uh, a great school but a school with a group that supports someone like him who isn't necessarily strictly there for book smarts, but someone who's a little more free form and on the creative side. And it's been it's been really helpful for him to have that that support network around, along with you know still having Ben and Rosa. It sounds like uh, the well thing uh, is probably a very therapeutic thing for you. Not the best at it, but it's something you can kind of, you know, let the world melt away. And Does Diego do any metal sculpture? He tries. He's had a couple of smaller pieces in like the school art shows over the years. Once had somebody uh, tell him that his piece was very interesting. Uh, your mother is currently stationed in Iran and sends postcards every few months. Your father still oversees operations at Mather Air Force Base in Sacramento, but calls on Sunday nights when he's able. How has your perception toward each of them changed? It took a lot of time to get over the initial hump of this is my fault. And he, for a long time, really felt like he had failed as as a kid. And as he's gotten older and then as he's 
talked it through. It's no longer a, oh, I'm the reason why it's he understands that, you know, sometimes people change and when things change, you have to change with it. Still a little bit kind of resentful, especially when he sees all the other kids with their parents and, you know, oh, they, they come and visit or they come and they bring them home on holidays. And yet he's still here. And the most he ever gets is a letter or a, a phone call. So he kind of begrudgingly understands why things are the way they are. But he still wishes that he had more of a, like a normal family life. And then uh, finally, to no one's surprise, Harcourt has become your best buddy. Uh, how do you guys spend your time together? Harcourt, weirdly enough, is honestly the one that dragged me uh, a little deeper into the art world and uh, really kind of helped to kickstart my appreciation for art. So we really like, you know, going to museums together and checking out exhibitions. And we, you know, talk about uh, the pieces that we're working on. And it's a really great buddy system to have somebody else who's doing art so they can say, hey, this is what I'm working on. How are you doing? Keep going. You're almost there. I've just that that backup is great. So we're we're both really into art now, or we're, we're hitting that phase where we're really starting to get into it. All right, cool. Thanks. Uh, that helps fill in a couple little gaps there. Ben, uh, let's talk about you. Uh, one of the nice things that's happened over the last four years that is that you've outgrown your bee allergy. How did you discover that? It so happened that it was in my freshman year. All the bullies and everybody pushing and pushing and pushing. And one day I just didn't go to school. I just started walking and I found myself out where we initially were at with the mushrooms. So it was a low point. Nobody believed me. Nobody cared. Everybody was pushing me away. So I figured, why why even be here? I wasn't thinking clearly, obviously. I sat down on the bank of the river and put my foot right on a mud dauber nest and didn't even realize it until it was too late. But instead of the normal where I run, I just sat there and let it happen. I just didn't care anymore. When I woke up, I didn't have any signs of bee stings anywhere on my body. I didn't go into too anaphylactic shock, and I felt for the first time my mind was clear. So I got up and brushed the mud off my shoes and walked back. When I got back home, of course I had to start dinner because mom wasn't home yet, over the sink washing the dishes, out of nowhere, stupid little bumblebee lands on my arm. And I looked down at my arm, and I'm like, oh, here we go, it's going to happen, and it just flew away. That has never happened before. Anytime a bee has come in contact with me, they have stung me. All right, uh, mom sends you something in the mail every week without fail. What kinds of things does she send? Until I told her to stop, every other week was a deck of cards. I have 46 decks of cards. <laughs> I don't need any more cards. But she sends me care packages. Sometimes it's uh, homemade cookies. One time it was the little kid's magic kit. Everything's made of plastic and you like pass your finger through and it disappears. Silly magic. I think I think she still thinks I'm a child or she wants me to remain as one. So mainly stuff like that. And uh, once in a while I get a, de- a nice letter from her letting me know what she's up to and how the house is. And Does she visit as much as she said she would? She's busier than she used to be, so I don't I don't get to see her much. Uh, she got a promotion at the base, so she's in charge of uh, base things. But I'm happy for her because she seems happy, but she's at least twice as busy as she used to be. Which is good that I'm not there because since she doesn't have to worry and she can focus on her career and making sure everything's safe. And then last final question for you. Uh, sometimes summer loving can happen so fast, but it seems that Lindsay is head over heels for you. How has your relationship evolved as you've both gotten older? We've dated on and off 
I've tried to take some space for myself to work on me, but she's never agreed to that. So we never really officially have ever broken up, but in my head, we've broken up at least three times. How are things currently? Pretty good right now. We're in a good spot right now. Face isn't buried in her journal as much, which is nice. She's actually experiencing things and we're going out and doing things rather than writing every single thing down, which is it's refreshing. How do you see this uh, blossoming into anything else? Marriage? Kids? After the childhood I grew up with, I'm not real eager to marry. I kind of want to make sure that I'm in a place where I can be there if I have a wife and kids. So I'm a little gun shy of that. But uh, being in a relationship, as long as there's no tugs and pulls pushing me somewhere that I don't feel comfortable being pushed, then I'm fine with going with the flow, man. Okay. Good job. Uh, Rosa, let's talk about you for a bit. Although the Academy doesn't have any livestock, you've managed to find an animal that needs care. Tell us about it. There's this squirrel. I live on the second floor and this squirrel comes and taps on my window and I go outside and give him little pieces of cracker. His name is Hubert. Hubert the squirrel. I don't know. He's a little gray squirrel. He's reddish though. He's got little tufty ears. I tell him stories and he like listens to me. Gives me no feedback, but whatever. It's cool. Does he ever come into your dorm room? I have a roommate and she like totally freaked out the first time she saw Hubert at the window. So if she's here and I see him at the window, I like close the curtains real fast. But when she's gone, I'll open the window and let Hubert in. Sometimes he shits on her desk. (laughs) (laughs) At first... Your folks regularly made the trek into L.A. to bring you home-cooked meals. But over the years, that has dwindled to special occasions only, it seems. Do you miss their attention, or are you just happy to be out from under their influence? They started coming to visit less because I was really hostile towards them. Uh, I did not welcome them being there. I've got friends now, and... I want to go hang out with my friends, which is really like a complete 180 because I used to be like devoted to my parents. I don't feel the same way as I used to about them. They visited at Easter. At first, they wanted me to come home and I wasn't going to do that. And so they came to visit and my mother bought some traditional pastries and stuff. And I just didn't really want anything to do with them. Like they wanted to go out to brunch on Easter Sunday or something. And I was like, no. That's not happening. You're like, I got plans. Yeah. And then I went and go, you know, tried to break into a warehouse and shoot a gun. (laughs) (laughs) But as we can see, I'm not very good at breaking into the warehouse. I'm okay at shooting the gun. Yeah, that warehouse is just full of bullet holes. (laughs) Light streaming in from all these different holes in the warehouse. Right. I ended up like shooting lock off. (laughs) Final question for you. A new student this year at Greyheart immediately took a liking to you and you to her. Tell us about your new friend, Cece. She's super cool and she has these really like out there ideas. She doesn't think like anyone else, which is something that I really like. I've sort of hinted at some things going on and and some weird things happening to me. And like she listens. She doesn't immediately tell me I'm crazy. And she doesn't or immediately say that I'm, you know, stupid and making stuff up. And I really like that she, she listens and she's just... She's just the coolest, and I really like spending time with her. She has come along when my friend John and I shoot the gun. It's John's dad's gun, and he stole it from his dad. He steals it from his dad. And Cece doesn't shoot, but she just hangs out with us and, you know, maybe drinks a beer or something. 
which is really cool. And I will say, since you've known Cece and uh, grown closer to her, it didn't really dawn on you until just recently that you don't know much about her childhood either. It just took you a little bit of time to figure out, like, not only have you not been telling her about what has happened to you, but she also is a little mysterious. As a matter of fact, you don't even really know what CC stands for. And I'm a little bit hesitant about that because of what happened with Nikki. I just thought CC owned a chain of all-you-can-eat pizza buffet restaurants, but that might just be me. Yeah, she really likes pizza and she lays it out and like you can put your own toppings on it and stuff. Yeah, it's great. Okay, guys, I think that is a good starting point and helps fill in some of those interesting historical occurrences since we've last seen you. So we're going to dive into it. And now a word from our sponsor. Sprouting, a Call of Cthulhu actual play podcast by Blighthouse Studio. Find us on your podcatcher of choice. Now, as the curtain rises, it is late afternoon on Monday, April 17. It is the tail end of your final semester at Greyheart Academy when students are encouraged to find outside work experience for a couple school credits and minimum wage. Lindsay already interns at the Los Angeles Daily News as a cub reporter, and Cece runs tech at a music club downtown most nights. Somehow, Harcourt has managed to wrangle positions for Ben, Rosa, Diego, and himself at Odeon Studios in Toluca Lake. The pay isn't bad, and it's just a few hours, 6 to 9 p.m., three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Initially, Rosa thought this might be her big break into show business, until it became clear the term studio has been loosely applied. Still, a job was a job and could lead to bigger things in the future. After the last class of the day, the four of you regroup to head to work. We need to talk about what's the vehicle situation. You guys are old enough to drive now. Do you guys have cars? I got a motorcycle. It's a mini bike. I call it a motorcycle, but it's a mini bike. I couldn't afford an actual motorcycle. I would assume that uh, you and Harcourt could probably go together on the on the mini bike. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's like Dumb and Dumber. I gotta pee. Just go, man. I expect to see fan art of Harcourt and Diego on a mini bike. <laughs> so Rosa and uh, Ben, what do you guys think? What, what's your situation? Didn't you say Cece was going to give you a ride to work? And maybe as we're talking, she pulls up. Cece is, uh, she's 5'10", 
shoulder length feathered blonde hair with a bright pink widow's peak, black leather jacket, ripped jeans, torn white t-shirt, wallet chain, dagger earrings. The scooter's a little bit beat up, but you can tell that she works on it. It's been patched together and there's like components from different scooters that are maybe a bit more powerful than this poor little body can stand. Yeah, she pulls up and she's like, hey, I heard someone here needs a ride. Oh my God. Cece, yeah, thanks. I could use a ride. It's fine, man. It's it's on the way to the purple parrot, but God, my ass is freezing right now. Oh, okay. Okay. So I run over. I don't think she has an extra helmet for me. I actually don't even think she's wearing a helmet. I slip on behind her. Yeah. And I snug up real close and she's like, hold on tight. And I'm like, okay. So I put my arms around her. You touch me like that, Harcourt, you're dead. And Cece does her best to peel out. Ben, if you don't have a car. Take the bus, man. Sure, I guess. <laughs> and believe it or not, because of the way the traffic patterns work in Los Angeles, of all places, the bus actually gets there first. Uh, Cece is dropping off Rosa as Ben is stepping off the bus. I super don't mind spending extra time snugged up against Cece. She leans into Rosa. What time do you get off? Because I, I got to work kind of late tonight. Nine. They don't pay us extra, but they keep us late sometimes. 9.05. I get out of the club around 11. It's actually industry night, so. But if you want to swing by, the club's just down like three blocks. You can hoof it. I mean, I'll see if I can bum a ride with someone. All right. Yeah, cool. Whatever, man. Beep, beep. Here's a bus. Cool. And uh, you got tomorrow off, right? Yeah. You do anything after class? Hanging out with you, of course. You know, maybe we just get together and, you know, read something. I don't know. Study. Yeah. You know, there's that hill over in the in the woods. We should we should study on that. Yeah, I've heard about this hill. <laughs> what have you heard about the the hill? I, I, I don't know. I just heard it was a good place to study. Dude, I don't know if you know this, but that's where they go to Nosh. Well, I mean, we could also see if we can catch anyone. I like this. Yes. Okay. Perfect. It's a date. Yes. All right. I got to get to work. It's, it's we're going to. Yeah. Good luck. All right. Bye. Have a good night. Yep. Bye. She peels out. Harcourt and Diego pull up to the front of the Odeon Studios, kind of weaving a little bit. Looks like maybe uh, one of the tires is slightly going flat. Harcourt is like, has his arms around Diego, but he's got him like in a, as wide as he possibly can. So he's like not touching Diego. <laughs> Diego gets off and Harcourt's just still holding on, stuck to his back. <laughs> hey. All right. And then the four of you are back together again. Now, conveniently located a few miles south of the Burbank Glendale Pasadena Airport in scenic Toluca Lake, Odeon Studios is a nondescript office building situated in a featureless business park, among other identical structures. In fact, if you hadn't seen the small print next to the buzzer outside the windowless, electronically locked front door the first time you visited, you might have searched for hours before finding it. Inside, however, it is anything but unremarkable. A narrow hallway lined with old movie posters from the first half of the 20th century and cluttered with unopened parcels leads to a welcome desk where once a receptionist juggled several phones and scribbled important notes for the owner, Mr. Eugene Eubanks. Now, though, there is no aspiring young actress because the phones have been silent for at least a decade and the proprietor is notoriously cheap. These days, he prefers to answer his own phone on the off chance it does ring once or twice a week. Eugene's office is likewise a riot of overstuffed file cabinets, stacks of long out-of-print magazines, and yellowing newspapers all surrounding a massive oak desk, upon which is usually found a half-eaten bagel, a cold cup of black coffee, and an overflowing ashtray. 
Upstairs, several floors serve as storage for past acquisitions of unproduced scripts, unwanted films squirreled away in rusty canisters, crumpled lobby cards, and cardboard standees mangled by the general public. The very top floor is a ratty projection room with a moth-eaten screen, wooden folding chairs that are permanently stuck open, and an ancient-looking projection system with one bare speaker for sound monitoring. Supposedly, there is another theater in the locked basement level, but Eubanks has the only key, and so far he hasn't seen fit to allow you down there. As soon as you show up for your afternoon shift, you hear him call out from his office, Hey, is that the Four Stooges out there? Come on in here, you knuckleheads. I got some extra credit for you. Swear to God, if he makes me scotch guard that couch again. I start heading down the hallway. So the four of you enter into his office, and there is Mr. Eugene Eubanks. He's a pretty nice guy. I mean, he's easygoing for the most part. He likes to josh around quite a bit. Clearly, he's in his 60s, overweight, drinks too much, smokes too much, eats bad food, and is kind of deluding himself that this is a proper studio. He constantly tosses out names of people who are famous at the time, and you get the impression that he's trying to make a good impression. Oh, yeah. Oh, hey, uh, how's it going there, Ben? Good, sir. Uh, what did you have for me today? Oh, I got a bunch of stuff, but uh, what have you been up to lately? Come on, tell, tell the old man about all the things that you threw up to today. Well, when I woke up, I found that I was a bee. Oh, my God. I had a, I had a dream like that once, too. Except that was a vacuum cleaner. Oh, uh, so you sucked? I sucked. <laughs> That's what my wife said. Oh, I love our banter. So much banter. Hey, Rosa, how you doing, kid? I'm okay, Mr. Eubanks. Well, okay is better than not okay. That's what I always say. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, Diego, how you doing there? Hey, uh, d- doing okay. Uh, mini bike was a little bit wobbly, but, you know, I think I can fix that. I heard that thing belching as soon as you pulled up there. Uh, may- you know, maybe if you get some work done around here, I get get you guys paid by the end of the week and you can pour some money into that piece of crap. Mr. Eubanks, when are we getting paid? I want to go out with my friends. Oh, yeah, Friday night. I'll have cash under the table. I mean, I'll have cash for you. Did that uh, script get picked up that you sent out last week? Oh, what, what was script was that, Ben? I don't, I don't, I, my memory's not so good. It's the one about the kid who became a superpowered bee. No, 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 no. It's the one. The only reason I remember it was called Ben. Yeah, yeah, the rats. I think they're going to pass on that. You know, technically, I don't have the rights. I thought a rat that steered someone by pulling their hair sounded really weird. It does sound very strange. I don't, yeah, I I just don't get it. But, you know, I don't do sci-fi. No one's ever going to make a movie like that. Sci-fi is what all, you know, the Star Wars and... Star Trek. Yeah, Star Trekking. I don't know. I'm not one of them trackies. I'm not like one of them, you know, lightsaber thing guys. When people need a studio, they come to me, they say... Hey, you, you, could we use your studio? People call me you, you. I don't know why. I say, no, my name's Eugene Eubanks, not you, you, but that's fine. If they want to call me you, you, and they want to hire the studio, I'm all for it. It's fine. So we still moving old uh, film reels again? Oh, no, I got got some stuff, some some new stuff here. Uh, Let me see my list here. And he pulls out a drawer and you see a bunch of dust come out. He pulls out a notepad and kind of waggles it around. Grabs the pencil. He gives it a couple good licks. Guys, we're, I'm going to have to split you up today. I'm sorry. Uh, I know they say never split the party, but <laughs> we're going to split you up today. All right. Uh, Harcourt, I'm going to need you to uh, uh, clean up the theater on the fifth floor. I got uh, Willie Freakin'. Uh, he wants a private screening away from all the hubbub. You know, he's kind of famous now. He's going to come over here and, you know, do a little debut of his new film. So we need to make Willie happy. I need you to clean that shit up there. Okay? 
okay, that sounds good. I'll, I'll catch up with you guys later. Uh, I'll just be up on the fifth floor. Uh, good, good, good luck. And he scampers off. Uh, now, uh, Rosa, uh, I'm going to need you to uh, start sorting some movie posters. I got a whole bunch out there in the hallway that just came in. You know, we got some of the old stuff, too. So I'm going to need you to, like, take a look at those. And I, I need them sorted by year. I need you to tag for quality. It's going to take a little while. And keep an eye out, okay? You taking notes? Keep an eye out for an original poster from The Dead Train Arrives at Midnight. Oh, classic. Circa 1972. Now, I don't know if you know this, but that starred Doug McIntyre. He's king of the Z movies, and he signed that sucker. And I got a buyer. Wow, Doug McIntyre, really? You know, I didn't believe it when I saw it. It came in. He signed it. And we're going to make a mint. I mean, you know, somebody's going to make a mint off that. But uh, I need all the rest of it sorted, too. So just, you know, make sure to do that. Tag by quality and by year, okay? Are there any old ones that I can, you know, I like to put them up in the bedroom? Oh, yeah. Well, if you see something that, you know, maybe is kind of ripped to shreds, eh, we can talk about it. Maybe I'll take a little out of your pay. How's that sound? All right. All right. Good luck, kiddo. All right, Diego, let me see what I got for you, young man. Uh, oh, God, yeah. Oh, this is really, really important, okay? I'm going to need you uh, up on the third floor. Search prop storage, okay? Uh-huh. I need a rubber mask that was used in Squid People from Atlantis, uh-huh. circa 1968. You'll know uh-huh. when you see it. Everybody knows Squid People from Atlantis. Very famous movie. Uh-huh. I just really need that, okay? We're uh-huh. going to try to make a brand new cast of that, all right? Uh-huh. Looking for a sequel. Oh, you didn't hear from me. Squid People. Got it. Good luck. So not the squid people from Atlanta, the squid people from Atlantis. That's like some housewives things. Real squid wives of Atlanta. Ben, all right, now now that the other ones have gone. Yes, uh, sir. Come on over here. I got I got a little bit of a problem, Ben. I'm hoping you can help me with it. And he gets up and puts his arm around you. Don't mention this to anybody else, okay? I kind of lost the key to the basement. What? Now, you, you're a big, strong lad. I can see you've been working out recently. That's weird. I just need you to find some way to open it up, all right? Okay. And make sure everything is secure down there. Like, what do you mean? I mean, I got some valuables down there. I want you to make sure everything's kosher. Just make sure everything looks good. No one's been monkeying around down there. I want to make sure no one stole it and maybe went down there and did something, okay? Okay. Yes, sir. I will make sure. Good luck. And Ben trots off to check on that. So uh, we're going to go ahead and start with Rosa. Now, Rosa, uh, you go into the hallway where you know it is a complete and utter disaster as far as filing goes. There are posters folded in quarters. Some are still in roll tubes. So it's going to take you a long time to sort this stuff out. I want you to describe for me three other movie posters that catch your eye while sorting. I sort of have this like morbid fascination with like creatures from swamps now. I really want to take the blob from the bog. I like how the the name sounds, but also because it's a lot like something that I had to deal with. Nice. So it's the blob from the bog. The blob from the bog. And what, what does the poster look like? Trees and fog. And then in the corner, there's just like this big blobby substance. It's just a dark sweep from one side to the other. And you can see sort of these faces like screaming and they've been swallowed by, think of like a gelatinous cube. They've been swallowed by the gelatinous cube and they're like floating in there. That's one. How about another one? The Knights from Venus. 
it shows this person in a full like medieval looking armor getup, but they're looking at this like foreign like sandy landscape and of course they've done some weird filter on it to make it like a different color and how about the final one title of the movies i saw it last summer and this one is another one with like trees but they're like really really close together so it's almost like a wall of trees and then you can just see like this head poking out from behind one of the trees and these like glowing yellow eyes and the head looks like furry kind of head and it's got ears that are definitely not human okay very good and at this stage i'm going to have to ask you to make a library use first roll of the campaign don't fuck it up Ooh, hard success with a 28 under 50. You're essentially, uh, you know, sorting through these posters, imagination captured by many of them, including the blob from the bog, the knights from Venus, and I saw it last summer. To your delight, you find the signed poster from The Dead Train Arrives at Midnight, indeed signed by Doug McIntyre. And it is in pristine shape, way better than uh, you had expected. You find it actually sort of poking out of a roll of cardboard unto itself. So it has been protected all this time. As you are sorting these things a couple times, particularly the blob from the bog, you kind of keep returning to that particular poster because it is so striking, the images on it. Just a little glimpse. One of the faces kind of looks like you. But then as you study it closer, it's quite clearly just an amorphous conjunction of two other faces that the middle face sort of looks vaguely like yourself. But as you study it closer, the resemblance fades away. I mean, it's a horror movie. I'm supposed to see myself, right? Maybe that's it. Like you're seeing all these different horror posters that it's giving you the heebies, but maybe not the jeebies. And you forget it immediately once you find the Dead Train Arrives at Midnight poster because... Because... Oh my god, Mr. Mr. Ubex is going to be so excited. Maybe he'll let me have one of these posters. Diego, we're going to move on to you. Uh, you go up to the third floor, start searching around for the uh, rubber mask that was used in the squid people from Atlantis. Now, as you go through all this stuff, uh, why don't you describe some of the other props that you run across? One of the first things that, that really sticks out to me is a couple of trash can lids that have been stuck together with almost like foil duct tape. And you can tell it's had just little bits and baubles taped onto it. And I'm guessing it was used as like almost like a flying saucer in some sort of alien picture. Some of the stuff is falling off and it's like, oh, they hot glued like beads to it. Or they, you know, looks like somebody had tried to stick a light bulb on it at some point. As I'm like walking around, I'm like carrying it in one hand going, woo, 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 I'm coming. And just kind of like, as I'm, as I'm carrying the ship around, I find a couple of, uh, like small dolls that were, you know, have their eyes missing and hair has been pulled out. Probably used in some sort of horror film at some point. And you can kind of go, go, woo, woo. And I go, oh no, we're being abducted. And I'm just like, <laughs> having, I'm mean, having a good time just playing around with all these, these like weird odds and ends that have come from films that I've never seen nor heard of and they will never be seen from ever again, seeing as they've just been lost to the void of media. I do find a squid mask, but it's in a box labeled The Real Squid Wives of Atlanta, so (laughs) I have to put that back. Close, but no cigar, right? As you're looking through, you'll hear like something shift amidst the rubble of all these other props that are leaning at weird angles against cupboards and piled high on tables. You begin to suspect 
that there might be rats or mice living in the junk piles. Well, it makes sense. Seems like every time you turn your back, something moves behind you, but you turn around and there's clearly nothing there. But I will need you to do a spot hidden in order to find the actual squid people from Atlanta. I needed a 59. I rolled a 59. That is a success. Yes, indeed. Uh, You do find the um, actual mask. Uh, At first, you were a little downtrodden because it was taking so long to find it. And when you do find it, it's in a box called The Real Squid Wives of Atlanta Part 2. But as soon as you open it, you can see it is an authentic squid people from Atlanta's mask. It's in relatively poor shape, starting to flake off the paint that was used. Those kind of molds, those castings generally don't do too well unless they're kept in properly climate controlled, humidity controlled spaces. The rubberized plastic is really stiff. Like it it couldn't be used again. Uh, It would be very hard to put this on without uh, destroying it entirely. But uh, you have found it and it does have the tag on it to identify it. And so you feel pretty good about completing your task, even though it took you quite a bit of time to do so. Grab the mask and start excitedly walking out, not realizing that I'm still wearing kitschy plastic jewelry from an old film called My Mommy's a Mummy. So it's like that really bad, like fake Egyptian stuff. I have like the big necklace on and like a couple of earrings. You forget that you're wearing it. I feel so pretty. All right, Ben, how you gonna open this lock? If only we knew somebody who had three points in locksmith. Um, excuse me, sir, two. I'm gonna walk up and try the door handle. It is locked. I'm going to go to the front reception's desk, and I'm going to rifle through and try to find some paper clips. You do. Nice. I'm going to take those paper clips back, and I'm going to attempt to lockpick the door. Do it. Roll it. I needed a 43. I rolled a 17. I'm hard. It was a hard success. So, yeah, you insert the paper clips and twirl them around into the keyhole. The tumbler is quite old, and so this door and the, and the lock is relatively easy to pick but because you did it so well it disengages with nary a click and creaks open and you see stairs leading down but not only do you see stairs leading down into the basement but you find the key on the top step tilt my head a little bit step back and shut the door and crouch down and look to see what, how big of a gap there is underneath the door between the floor. Probably enough the... gap if somebody had dropped a key, it'd probably slide down there. Shake my head, open the door, take a couple steps in, turn around and grab the key. And because curiosity killed my cats, I'm going to see what's in this basement. So the steps lead down to yet another what appears to be a large storage area. So the entire basement is the floor of the building. But it's really cluttered because here, stored for some reason, is what appears to be carnival and circus equipment. Dusty, cobwebbed, and unused. Oh, no feel on either side of the bottom of the stairway to see if I can find lights to turn it. Yeah, there does appear to be a light switch. Okay, I'm going to flip it. Several bare bulbs all around the area on the ceiling come to life, casting a yellowish sort of murky light. And you can see this whole area, the whole floor, the whole level. There is so much equipment. There's like avenues carved that you can walk through. Like a path that was just 
appeared as they put stuff in. They kind of shoved it to the side so they could get through. Put the key in my pocket and take a stroll around. The one thing my mom drained into me when I was little, little, is don't touch anything when you go into a new place. So I have my hands clasped hand in hand behind my back as I stroll through, like an old man. As you walk along through the murky basement darkness, going from spotlight to spotlight of these bare bulbs, what are some things that you might find down there that would be from a carnival or a circus? Three stacks of a Ferris wheel cars, precariously stacked, balancing on each other, one on each side and one on top of the two. What caught my eye for that in particular is the light bulb is almost directly above, and it's almost a perfect little circle around that display. It's almost like it was laid out for people to view. The colors are striking on the cars. They're a very light baby blue, but with a very vibrant red for the accents and the big star on the fronts of each of the cars. Anything else of interest down there that you see? Uh, There's something covered in a uh, burlap tarp. Again, not wanting to get in trouble. Hands behind my back. I lean in. I lean around. I just can't see what it is. I'm gathering that it might be a one of those old pipe organ carts that would, they would tow through the carnival to play the music as it went around, announcing that there was a uh, show about to start and everybody should get to the center so they can watch it. The Freaks. And then as you begin to walk back, making the full circuit through this little pathway, you come across an old marquee. It's bulbs, long gone, but you can still read the words, The Great Eugene. Oh. And it's clearly some sort of magic act. You see a picture, a painted picture of a magician holding up a white rabbit, but it's so old and the paint has flaked and faded. It's barely there. Underneath this marquee are just a bunch of stacked boxes, cardboard boxes, and they are all labeled tricks. No way. I know I shouldn't, but I crouch to one knee in front of one box and i'm going to lift the lid of that box and see what's inside inside are a bunch of books hard covered books no title on the front strange i'm gonna pick the top book up and crack it open you crack it open and it's very clearly handwritten notes. This particular book appears to be detailing some magic trick secrets, and a lot of it is very hard to read because it is handwritten, almost indecipherable. But you're pretty sure that if you took a fair amount of time and studied it, it might yield some very interesting information. Grab this book, close the lid of the box, and I'm going to come back up the steps, shut the door, and take the key out and relock the door and put the key just under the underneath the door, but not enough to go to the first step. And then I'm going to take the book and I'm going to set it behind one of the boxes that are all packages that are all piled up in that front hallway. The three of you finish up your chores and come back down to Eugene's office to uh, report back, essentially. And as you come in, he's like, oh, out of go, guys. Uh, any issues? Oh, is that the mask, Diego? It's the mask, isn't it? 
Yes, yeah, it's uh, the right one. It was in the wrong box, but I found the right mask, so. What are you wearing, by the way? Is that from My Mommy is a Mummy? It might be. It made me feel pretty. What do you want? You know, you found the mask. Keep the jewelry. You look good. Aww. Sweet. It's all yours. Go ahead and bark that on your character sheet. You're good. I mean, if anybody can pull it off, it's you. So, nicely done, sir. All right, good. Hey, what, what do you got for me there, uh, Rosa? Oh, uh, I found... Mr. Eubanks, I found the I found the poster. Hey, we're coming up roses here. This is beautiful. Oh, look at that. Doug McIntyre right there. That's a beautiful signature, isn't it? How much would you pay for this, Ben? How much would I pay for it? Yeah, for this poster. It's beautiful. How much money are we getting on Friday? Well, you know, it depends on how much work we got. This is this is only day one of the week, so we'll see what else we got for you. I'd pay that much. Oh, you would. You pay a week's salary. You said it's worth a lot. You know what? I'll keep that in mind, all right? Hey, oh, uh, Rosa, since you did such a great job there, uh, I'm going to throw in a little bonus for you, okay? Oh, thanks. Here's uh, two tickets. You take a friend, whoever you want to. Two VIP tickets to see any show, even premieres, at the Star Theater in town, all right? It's very fancy. You know, you might see some celebrities or whatnot. You take someone special, all right? Thanks, Mr. Eubanks. Yeah, no, I appreciate you finding this and uh, taking care of all the rest of that stuff out there, all right? Oh, uh, Ben, Ben, what'd you find? What you got for me? Did you give me the, uh, you know, the thing we talked about? Uh, not yet. Working on it. Okay. It's been, been a while. What's, what's the holdup? It's been a while since I've had that experience. Wednesday? Yeah, all right. Wednesday, all right. But, uh, okay. That's fine. Uh, where the hell is Harcourt? He was on the fifth floor, sir. Okay. Well, maybe maybe catch up with him. Uh, I, I got to run. I got a meeting downtown. So I got to catch the uh, cross, cross town bus. You want us to lock up again? Yeah, if you wouldn't mind. You guys take care of that. And I'll, uh, I'll see you on uh, Wednesday, okay? All right. Sounds good. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Have a good night. Good mm-hmm. job, guys. Thank uh, you. You too. Ben. Yep. Thanks. Ben. Yeah. And he, he splits. Uh, I'm going to go see what is taking Harcourt so long. He should have been done by now. I think we should probably go check on Harcourt. Yeah, let's go check on him. So the uh, three of you traipse up to the fifth floor. And of course, it is all stairs. The elevator's not working. You guys find him. He's actually upstairs in the theater area, sitting in the front row. And the the theater is sort of dimmed down a bit as if there was a show imminent. And he's just sitting there, his back to you in the front row. Harcourt, what are you doing, you boob? There's no answer. Harcourt, come on. I'm going to go down and, like, shake his, his shoulder. I'm going to look at the, the chairs to see if he actually cleaned. It's so dimly lit in here that you just can't really make out. Plus, the chairs are in such poor shape anyways. It's hard to tell whether or not if he had cleaned. I'm going to turn around and look for the, the dimmer switch for the lights to bring the lights back up. And as you turn around, Rosa puts her hand on Harcourt's shoulder. He, he jerks visibly. Oh, okay. I, I'm, I'm sorry, uh... Rosa, uh, oh, how long have I been sitting here? Harcourt, I mean, we, we did finished our stuff and we went down to see Mr. Eubanks and he had to leave and you were there, so we came out to see. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry guys. Oh, my God. You're never going to believe this. And Rosa, that's when you realize that he's been holding a film canister in his hand. What do you got there? Diego, leave the lights down, okay? You guys, you've got to see this. You are not going to believe it. I found this movie. No, I'm not going to tell you anything. Just have a seat. All right. He rushes up to the projector. I don't have any popcorn or anything, but just, you know, pretend, okay? There's gum under the seats. Yeah, I got a nice piece right here. You want some? He makes sure that Ben is seated in the front row, exactly where he was sitting. It's warm. And moist. Harcourt flips a switch, and the movie begins. As celluloid spools into the projector, a rhythmic hum fills the air, and the lone speaker mounted at the front of the room near the ceiling, crackles with faint sound. An image appears on the screen, a black-and-white tableau. 
featuring four people seated at a circular-shaped table, upon which has been placed an Ouija board. The camera is stationary, perhaps mounted on a tripod, positioned behind and just to the side of one of the actors, so you're only able to see a vague, out-of-focus figure. The other three participants are crystal clear within the frame, and you guess they're probably the main players in the story. On the left is a pretty young woman with light hair in a retro sleeveless polka-dotted dress, white gloves, and a tight clutch of pearls around her thin neck. Across from her is seated an older woman with a darker complexion and outfit to match, wearing a sequined turban and squinting over cat's eye bifocal frames. Slightly off center, facing the camera, is a tall, good-looking man with thick hair that hasn't yet begun to recede, clothed in a well-fitted business suit and a perpetually sour look on his blandly handsome face. The quartet remains quiet, though casting expectant glances at your direction. Suddenly, a disembodied pair of hands appears from one side, holding a clapboard scribbled with handwritten notes. A reedy voice calls out, Scene 23, take 9. And the clapper closes suddenly, loudly. The hands disappear, and another deeper voice says ponderously, And action! The words are like magic, as everyone visibly settles into their designated spots and begins delivering script lines. It's obvious, within moments, that the young starlet in pearls is no Sophia Loren. Her Midwest accent cuts through the dialogue like a grocery store butcher prepping chicken wings for the display counter. Brutally efficient, with little finesse. The turbaned medium is hamming it up terribly, with her overlong soliloquies about the dangers of contacting the spirit world, even as one of her fake eyelashes comes loose and flaps wildly every time she blinks. The handsome business guy obligingly looks at whoever is speaking, face never changing, and when he utters his lines, they are purposely written for brevity. Even so, he's on the verge of tripping over any words with more than two syllables. It's amazing that no one calls a stop to the action. It continues unabated. You still can't make out the actor whose back is to the camera, but from his mellifluous, urbane voice... You can tell he's European, though trying hard to conceal his accent. Every so often, his face will turn slightly so you can see a well-defined jaw and flawless skin. The scene plays out as you'd expect. The medium convinces everyone to place their hands on the planchette, whereupon she adopts the traditional trance-like pose and begins imploring invisible entities. Guide our hands so that we may know thy will, she intones. Then she goes rigid, and, after a moment, 
intones in a different, deeper voice. I am here. There is emphasis on this last word, almost questioning. At this stage, the other actors appear to be somewhat stunned. The ingenue even risks a look at whomever is behind the camera before turning her attention back to the scene. Clearly, the actress playing the medium has gone off script. The mystery man gets them back on track, playing into this part of improvisational dialogue. Why are you here, exactly? Where do you come from? What is your name? Tendons creak as the medium slowly turns her attention to the speaker. Her mouth stretches in a hideous grin that seems as though it will split the skin at the corners of her mouth at any moment. I come to you from Kadath. She replies, and as she does so, her left eye slowly rolls up into her head, even as the right one remains focused on the man who is unconsciously leaning away from the actress, partially obscuring the sour-looking chap across from him in frame. Cut, comes the voice of the director. For Christ's sakes, Betsy, what the fuck are you doing? The woman pays no heed. She leans in closer to the mystery man. I am known by many names and will be known by many more. Now her lips are beginning to crack. Blood runs down her chin, staining her teeth in dark fluid that doesn't look like any special effect you've seen. Similar rivulets begin flowing from her eye sockets. There comes the sound of running feet. Jesus, Sid, I think she's having a stroke. Call an ambulance. The young actress pushes away from the table, toppling her chair noisily. I am here, the bleeding medium continues, her one good eye shifting to look directly into the lens, directly at you. To live again. Then, utter chaos. The camera as it tips over, tilting groundward, just manages to capture an image of the older actress's face exploding outward in a spray of blood as something emerges from inside her. You can only make out two gore-soaked legs, like furry tree trunks, standing where a human had sat only moments before. Frightened screams mingle with unearthly roars as the set becomes embattled. 
A fat, older gentleman wearing a director's cap and carrying a megaphone enters the scene alongside a younger man with a viewfinder on a loop around his neck. They take a couple steps toward the actors, then think better of it, and race toward an exit door that can now be seen from the camera's new vantage point on the floor at a 90 degree angle. The handsome man is hoisted off the ground by taloned claws, feet dangling several inches in the air. His gurgling shout is cut abruptly short by a sickening crunch. Copious amounts of blood spattering the floor beneath him. Shrieking, the young woman stumbles toward the door too. Then, the mystery man, in a fit of bravado, grabs the planchette and leaps forward, stabbing the creature in one of its massive thighs. Thick ichor spurts out. Another bellow, this time full of pain and surprise, fills the microphone with such volume the equipment fails. Now, there is nothing but movement and silence. You get a glimpse of hairy limbs lashing out at its attacker, the force of the blow hurtling the hapless actor up into the air. A second later, his limp, lifeless corpse collapses to the floor. Still howling, the beast turns in hot pursuit of the three that have escaped its wrath. It is out of focus now, so you can barely make out a monstrous shape with four arms, standing twice the height of a normal man, as it thunders through the wall, obliterating the door and disappearing into the night beyond. The camera, somehow, continues to film, but now... Its only subject is the mysterious man who died trying to protect his fellow thespians. Previously, his features were obscured. Now, you can see them quite clearly. His square jaw, his flawless skin, his slowly glazing eyes, filled with surprise and horror, and sadness. You know these features because you've seen them almost every day for years. On the projection screen, in a movie made at least a decade and a half ago, is the unmistakable likeness of Ben McKnight. This has been... Tape 2 of K-17, Seance 9. Today's episode is brought to you in part by our generous fans and supporters on patreon.com slash lovecrafttapes. 
Thanks to Jordy Rose, Atulia, Barry Robeson, Brownie Davis, Chris Parker, Elizabeth Grieve, James Mayo, John Scarcello, The Frilled Shark, Kyle Sherman, Huge Pie, Amanda Power, Jefferson Bell, Eric Zane, Olda Polkert, Mitch L., Ripley Iwin, Eric Phillips, Malamber 57, Snow, Luke Corbin, Andrew Petty, Dom Driver, Frank Delventhal, Horse Draper, Prophet of Woe, David Winterman, Boston Harbor Whore, Stephen Gregory, Liz Moonberry, Robert Jameson, Chainsaw Unicorn, Shelly DM, Captain Vashton, Peter VDB, James Brown, Flix Capacitator, Ineptus Astartus, Shane Stoley, Ruined Ashes, Matthew, Phoenix Black, Divini Ivanzarevich, Oddity, JR, J. Clark, Oritako, Sean McConnell, Brindle Stubbs, A.E. Jonesy, Marty Dixon, LMF10, Kie, Ba Tran, Rolling Boxcars, Rich Poe, John Caballero, Jeffrey Young, Bifford, Reaper Jones, Poppy Mama, Holden Nomans, Justin Levesque, Phil Campbell, Nicholas Hutto, John Kotopasic, Mick Cope, Kevin G, Robert Lamb, Jehovah's Thickness, Tomas, Chris Evans, Benjamin King, Certain Wizard of Isinglass, Robert Lutzner, The Great Scott, Steve L, Matt's sister, literally. Don't forget Cherry, Smegamus Grendelgunge, Chef Howie, Jack, Kabdar Tachai, Sarah Wiley, Huku Rao, David Agate, and Nick Carr. Thanks, guys. Appreciate all the support. Want to drop us a letter from beyond? Please visit lovecrafttapes.com anytime to fill out our contact form. Uh, we did have a couple letters I want to read to you guys. Yes, I thought it was very lovely. Got a letter from Andrew Petty, our old buddy. He wanted to know, uh, what is your favorite defunct soda? And what are your character's favorite defunct sodas from the 70s? <laughs> I'm not sure if it's still around, actually. It's called Surge. It was a cola that was in the late 80s, early 90s, mainly, mainly in the 90s. Double the sugar, twice the caffeine was their motto on the can. Oh, dude, I miss that stuff so much. I guess it's not defunct, but I really like Orangina. My favorite defunct soda is probably Crystal Pepsi. Oh, woof. Just because it was so stupid and weird. Yeah. Uh, We got a a letter from Annalise uh, who says, You all make a story I love more than anything to continue. You've given me so much. Kept me sane, honestly, and I just wanted to say thank you. Oh, that's nice. Thank you, Annalise. That's what we're here for. Geek Gunner wrote in recently and says... um, I think this was actually a review. Uh, this has definitely been one of the better RPG shows I've heard. I really like the recommendation segment. Sorry. And humor. <laughs> Although sometimes the silliness can get overwhelming. Yeah, I hear you there. Also, we're never funny. This is a serious podcast, guys. Very serious. Uh, very nice coverage of the rules and clear explanations about game mechanics. So, Geek Gunner, appreciate the review. But in the meantime, uh, subscribe to our live streams at twitch.tv slash lovecrafttapes or youtube.com slash lovecrafttapes. And thank you for listening to the Lovecraft Tapes. If you like what you've heard, please consider writing a review on the podcast platform of your choice. You can chat with me in real time at discord.lovecrafttapes.com. And if anybody wants to uh, share some uh, metal sculpture welding tips, uh, you can find me on Mastodon and Blue Sky at The Real Weird Kid. If somebody was to have a few points in lockpicking that they could spare, that would be awesome. If you could drop a note on my Linktree at linktree uh, slash lupine vendetta, all one word, that would be great. If anybody wants to reach out to me or Ben, just put your hands on either side of your mouth and raise your head to the sky and yell, buzz, buzz, buzz. Until next time, roll for the Squid Wives of Atlanta. Two. This, this time, time it's, it's personal. personal. <laughs> the Lovecraft Tapes podcast is copyright 2023. For more information and sponsorship opportunities, please send email to podcast at thelovecrafttapes.com.
Support the Lovecraft Tapes podcast and get access to exclusive content and rewards at patreon.com slash lovecrafttapes.